everyone. Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 115. And today I am speaking with Christy Hunter. Christy is the mother of Carson, who is now an eight-year-old girl who was diagnosed with childhood ovarian cancer earlier in 2021. September is both Childhood Cancer Awareness Month and Ovarian Cancer Month, Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. And I thought this was a really important conversation to share. I I loved my conversation with Christy. She opens up about Carson's diagnosis, the symptoms that she started presenting with, what her treatment was like, and how her treatment and life after cancer and survivorship now has impacted both Carson's life, her, her family's life, which includes her parents and her two older sisters. I I urge you to listen to this conversation and it's just a true testament to resilience. Um, And we often say, we always say that children are resilient, but you know, what does that really mean? And I think that listening to this um, is going to give you a little bit of a sense of that. It is my absolute pleasure and honor to welcome Christy Hunter to the Interlude podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Christy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It uh, feels like an honor to be here today. (laughs) I appreciate it. Can you start by telling the listeners a little bit about your story and who you are? Sure. Um, My name is Christy. Um, I am wife and mother of three uh, wonderful girls, ages 13, 11, and uh, our youngest, Carson, actually turned eight yesterday. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you so much. She had a great day, even though she was actually, she had a little cold, but um, she is our youngest daughter and um, was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in the fall. And obviously that just changed a lot of things within our family. Um, We are um, Phoenix natives. My husband's a physical therapist. Um, I do some social media work on the side and obviously coming off of the heels and kind of still in the thick of COVID um, made for a really interesting experience for both Carson and myself and then my husband when he was able to be inpatient too. So uh, we feel lucky to have the support that we have. We have uh, grandparents that helped us out as well as um, tons of community support. It really was just uh, like just astounding and very humbling to see the community come out and, and help us. So that was a really great and very neat experience for us. I'm glad that you were able to have the support because it really makes a huge difference. World of difference, yes. Can we go back to the fall and to Carson's diagnosis? You know, ovarian cancer is not common in Mm -hmm. children. And walk me through kind of how, what symptoms she was having, how the diagnosis was made. Sure, absolutely. So um, about three weeks prior, Carson had complained of a stomach ache. um, And 
you know, obviously that being our third child, we're no strangers to symptoms, right? Like headache, fever, <laughs> sore throat, all the things. So not uncommon. Uh, we kind of said, okay, just watched it for a few days. She would, she got better. And then on a Saturday, she woke up and her stomach pain um, was, was still there and pretty severe to the point where um, she just wasn't her normal self. She didn't want to play as much. She wasn't eating as much. So we took her into the doctor who said, um, let's just watch it again. She had no other symptoms at that time. Um, so he said, let's watch it. If it persists, bring her back in and we'll go ahead and like schedule an ultrasound. Um, so we left, she was better by the next day, never complained about stomach pain again, which is just incredible <laughs> when we think about the end result here. So that was about three weeks prior. And then um, about two weeks after that, so about one week before her diagnosis, she would get low fevers in uh, typically the morning. And it wasn't necessarily every morning. It was like she got a fever on a Tuesday morning, um, kind of gave her a dose of Tylenol. She was home for the day from school from that. Went back to school Wednesday because she felt perfectly fine. No other symptoms at all. Um, and then a low fever again, I believe on Thursday. And then again on Sunday, we had been out of town that weekend and she was acting fine, um, eating normally. Everything seemed totally fine, but low fever again Sunday. And I thought, that's really strange. It's now been, I think at that point had been five days of a fever. Um, and again, we'd give her a dose of Tylenol and she would be perfectly happy and content again. Um, however, that weekend we did notice that she was um, kind of walking a little bit funny, which sounds strange. Um, her stomach was hard to the touch on one side of her abdomen and it looked a little bit distended. Um, I would say less than a half inch if I were looking at it just with my eyes. Um, and I thought, okay, those are also really strange. We COVID tested her several times <laughs> throughout that week because I thought surely this has to be COVID or something related. Um, but it was always negative. We took her into the pediatrician Monday morning. We did not see our regular doctor. Um, it was a different pediatrician and she said right away, oh, this is COVID. And I was like, okay, but <laughs> we've tested her several times. It's been negative. She swore up and down it was COVID. She swabbed her in the office, it was negative. Swabbed her for strep, swabbed her for flu, all negative. Um, and I made sure to mention again, like this part of her stomach feels a little hard to the touch. It looks a little distended. She felt around in there really well and said, I think she's just constipated. So go home and just give her prunes kind of gave me a dosing schedule of prunes for the next few days. Um, but she did say, which is the one thing I'm so grateful for, she said, if her fever gets above 102 at this point, that was day six, she said, go immediately to the emergency room. So we went home, uh, rest of the day, she was fine, no fever, um, sent her to school Tuesday, and she, I went and volunteered at the school Tuesday, she was running around like a maniac, playing tag at lunch. I saw her, I was out <laughs> volunteering. She was perfectly fine. But by Tuesday night, her fever got to about 102.4. And I just thought, okay, I'm done messing around. I knew if we uh, went back to a pediatrician um, because of health insurance, our health insurance is just awful. Uh, they would want us to go see a specialist who would then order 
test A, B, or C, which would then take a week to get scheduled, take a week to get results. And I just thought, nope, we're going to Phoenix Children's Hospital. So I told my husband, let's let her sleep. She was perfectly comfortable after a dose of Tylenol, um, not complaining of anything at all. Um, and I said, let's just let her sleep all night. We'll wake up in the morning and take her to PCH. Um, so that night I and my middle daughter wound up with stomach flu. So I was like, well, I can't walk into a hospital with <laughs> stuff coming out everywhere. So um, my husband was the one that took her to PCH. And by 10 a.m. that morning, he had the doctor on the phone with me in the ER. And she said, you need to come down here right away. Um, this is likely a tumor. And she's like, if I had to take a bet, it would be cancerous. We're going to go ahead and start her paperwork to be admitted to the oncology floor at PCH. Um, and it was it was. Uh, looking back on it, very surreal. It almost seems like, how could that have even happened? Um, and then, yeah, from there, it was kind of all a blur, but my husband was so uh, shaken up by the information, he couldn't tell me himself. So the doctor had to FaceTime me because he just, he was a mess, uh, and rightly so, being the only parent there, you know, dealing with that. So, yeah. You know, I feel like it's, you think there's so many things it could be that cancer in a seven-year-old's probably not at the top of your list or anywhere in the top, you know, whatever number. Yeah, not at all. Um, especially as they started to ask questions and looking back on it, um, you know, is there a history of breast cancer, ovarian cancer? They wanted to kind of look at all of the different cancers that had ever been in our family. And we just had never had any of those cancers. Um, and obviously a very different type of cancer in adults when um, ovarian cancer does appear. But yeah, it was it was shocking. I thought for sure maybe like, I, I mean, I don't even know what I thought it was, just viral, honestly. I, I feel like everything our kids have ever had has just been a virus. Watch and wait, it'll go away. Like really nothing you can do. Um, so it was it was shocking to say the least, yeah. What happened? in the days following she gets admitted to the hospital i'm sure there was a million doctors coming to see you guys yeah lots of doctors and lots of information um she was taken right up to the oncology floor and hooked up to iv fluids right away um and then they uh scheduled a ct for her to kind of get a really good idea of what they were dealing with as far as the tumor once we got the results of that um, was the first time we actually met with an oncologist and he came in um, and said here's the results of the ct showed it to us and it was unbelievable um, the tumor was about five inches by seven inches and obviously they couldn't really tell weight at that time but on the imaging um, it looked like when they were doing the slices from, you know, kind of front to back abdomen and side to side, there were several sections where it looked like it took up the entire space of her abdominal cavity. Um, I, I could not believe it. So he met with us and luckily, I think for my own sanity and my husband's, um, he knew a little bit more than I did, obviously having a kind of a medical background with a, being a physical therapist, I had no clue, but the words they were throwing around at that time were things like neuroblastoma and um, teratomas, which is you know, typically a benign uh, tumor. 
And luckily I did not know what a neuroblastoma is because I think I would have <laughs> just totally lost it. So they talked to us through several scenarios of what it could be. And then they said, we need to get it out right away. So they scheduled her for surgery the next morning. Um, we, my husband stayed with her that night in the hospital. And then I went back down there the next morning after having kind of explained to our older daughters what was going on, which was, you know, a, a nightmare in and of itself. And she went into surgery the very next morning. It was faster than they anticipated, which was really good. They were telling us it was going to be anywhere from like a three to four hour resection time, I think, just to <clears throat> give themselves a little <laughs> wiggle time um, looking back on it. But um, I felt like there were so many little interventions along the way. And the surgeon who started her surgery was the chief of surgery at PCH. And I actually read about him and known about him. I felt really confident in um, that scenario happening under his watch. And then the surgeon that took over for him um, has been Carson's surgeon ever since through the next two surgeries. So she's, she's amazing. And we are just so blessed with the care that she received at PCH. Um, so, and then after surgery was just really, really difficult. She um, had um, an epidural and that was, so let's see, she went into surgery on a Thursday. The epidural didn't come out until Saturday as well as the catheter. And she just was in tremendous pain um, anytime she would try to move. It took a long time for her to even want to sit up on the edge of the bed um, her incision goes all the way from maybe like two inches above her belly button toward like all the way to her pubic bone. So it was a massive, massive incision. Um, and the surgery went really well. We didn't get an initial pathology right away. I believe we got it the following Monday. So she'd already been home from the hospital for a day. Um, she was cleared and got discharged on a Sunday. We didn't really have any other information other than the surgeon said, I, to me, this looks like a teratoma. Um, so we kind of did a little bit of research on that. It seemed like possibility of it being something benign, but we weren't sure. Um, and then we got the pathology results on a Monday, or maybe it was a Tuesday. I think it was a Tuesday. We had to go back in. They checked her um, incision. She looked really good. She obviously wasn't fully recovered by then, but she was walking okay. I had to wheel her into PCH just because it's a long walk in from the garage and all of that. But um, they they initially told us at that appointment, that Tuesday initial pathology report, that they got the whole tumor. It was clear margins. Everything looked really good, and she was not going to need chemo. Um, and we were obviously thrilled. <clears throat> it was real tough doing that without my husband being there because <laughs> all those outpatient appointments at that time were only one parent or guardian. So it was, I mean, I was trying to like deal with her <laughs> and her emotions, which already were over the top, uh, rightly so, and her pain level and all of that stuff. She was still on pain meds by then. Um, talked to my husband on the phone. He was listening in, trying to conference in, and then Talk to the oncologist as well. Um, so, and then we got home and later that night at about 8.30, we got a phone call and the oncologist said, I think I want to like take a look at this pathology report again. We got the final pathology report in and he said, there's one place where I don't like the language they used in terms of the encapsulation of the tumor margin. And he said, I want to review it and uh, look at it again tomorrow with the pathologist. And I thought, 
oh my gosh, um, what is happening? So we went from like super high, like, yay, everything was clear. She's good to go. She's not going to need chemo. Thank heavens. Like this could, I mean, you know, obviously no one ever wants a childhood uh, cancer mm-hmm. diagnosis, but it had to be it. This was great. They got the whole thing. Um, you know, we can move forward to, oh my, like this is, this could possibly be going the other way. And then by the next morning, he called us and said, um, there was a little piece of the tumor that wasn't fully encapsulated. And for that reason, I think we need to do chemotherapy. So the next, I don't know, 24 hours was a whirlwind of just getting her, um, scheduled in for chemo. First of all, the hospital was very busy. Um, and then we knew we also would have to do a port placement surgery along with that. Mm -hmm. And then starting the process of getting everything approved through insurance. So it was a whirlwind of a couple weeks for sure. And what did you tell Carson at that point about why she needed the surgery? How did you explain chemotherapy to someone so young and what that would mean for her? Yeah, so that's a really good question. We we relied very heavily on child life um, at Phoenix Children's. They were incredible. They came in and talked to Carson through every step of the way, um, explaining the diagnosis at first in the hospital of cancer, um, which, you know, included two child life team members around her bed, myself, um, my husband, because she was inpatient at that time, and her oncologist, they were all there at the same time, um, which was amazing. And I almost had no words. It was, um, it was the hardest thing I think I've ever had to do. And of course, being seven, I don't think she truly understood what it fully meant at the time. Um, we hadn't had anyone real close to us in our lives who had um, been through a cancer diagnosis. So she, I think, didn't fully grasp that. Um, in the, the same conversation, we had to prepare her for surgery the next day. So, um, you know, we, we told her it was possibility of cancer. It was a tumor. We were, we were fairly honest with her. Um, my mom was a school counselor for the majority of her career. And I just didn't want to um, not be truthful with Carson. I I feel like being truthful with my kids has always been something that's been important to me. Of course, I didn't want to overwhelm her or, um, you know, devastate her, but I also wanted to be truthful that she was headed into surgery and it was going to be a hard road of recovery. She would experience pain. you know, and things that she'd never experienced before. So we just walked her carefully through the steps of, you know, what the surgery would look like and likely the recovery would look like. Obviously, none of us were prepared for <laughs> the reality of that with a with a seven-year-old child. Um, you know, we had to explain things like a catheter to her and why she was, you know, hooked up to IVs. She really disliked having the IVs right from the get-go. So um, we tried to be as honest with her as we could while using child life um, to really guide us in using appropriate terminology and things that she could understand at her age level. It was it was a struggle. Um, obviously, as a parent and caregiver dealing with my own emotions, <laughs> my husband having his own thoughts and feelings about it, and then trying to temper that down to a level that was appropriate for Carson. Um, and then again, like once we got the, the actual diagnosis of cancer and then needing chemo, um, 
trying to explain that as best as we could to her, what that would look like um, without, again, having a ton of experience with it. But she knew she would be going back to the hospital for four to five to six days at a time for each round of chemo. Um, and it was likely she would have three rounds of chemo. She'd have to have another two surgeries with it, um, port placement, and then, you know, getting the port taken out. And it was not easy. It wasn't, those were not easy conversations to be had for sure. How did she do with the chemotherapy? Um, I think she did fabulously. I was, I mean, I could not be more proud of her, um, to be honest. It was, it was unbelievable and just humbling to watch her go through something so difficult. And I just kept thinking, I don't think I could do this. Like, I don't think I had the strength, the willpower, the courage, um, the patience to do the things that she did. The first round of chemo was super traumatic. She went in for port placement surgery on a Tuesday, I think it was, a Tuesday morning. Um, she had a horrible reaction to the anesthesia for the port placement surgery waking up and couldn't stop vomiting. And I just thought, okay, <laughs> she's already puking, headed into chemo. This is just not ideal. Um, and the the nursing staff and the doctor told us like, we can't start chemo until she's, you know, recovered mm -hmm. a little bit from the nausea and the vomiting. So we had to get that all under control. Um, and that quite frankly, took until 8 p.m. that night. I think we got to PCH at like 6 a.m. that morning. So it was a very long day already. She was exhausted. Um, obviously, second major surgery in about, let's see, a two and a half week time period, which was just a lot on her little body. Um, and then they started the first chemo at about 8 p.m., uh, which was bleomycin. And then at about 9.30, they started the atopicide and she had an alert, like a crazy allergic reaction to it. And it was real scary. Her breathing um, was not good. They kept giving her the like whole oncology team came flying in the room and kept giving her like dose after dose after dose of Benadryl, oxygen, all the stuff. And I thought, holy moly, she barfed everywhere. Um, her face turned super red and she screamed, what is happening? I mean, she was just oh, like, God. I know something is really not right here. Mm -hmm. um, and come to find out, I guess that's a pretty, um, not necessarily common, but they do see it, um, yeah. that reaction to a top aside. So that put everything on hold. <laughs> so at that point, <laughs> she'd only had one chemo. And then uh, they wanted to try a top of FOSS, which didn't actually happen until the next day. So she calmed down, she slept a little bit that night. And then um, we actually were able to start the, the alternative medication, which was a top of FOSS the next day. And that was followed by, um, oh gosh, cisplatin. So um, she's a warrior. I, there are no words to describe like how impressed I was with how she handled everything. That being said, um, for me, watching all of this medication going into her body was just uh, my worst nightmare. We're, we tend to rely on a lot of natural remedies and <laughs> things like that at home. And for, I don't know, for me to watch um, chemotherapy go straight into her port, which was going directly to her heart was horrible for me to witness. Um, and she felt awful. Um, the first day obviously was really trying just with the second surgery. 
um, the allergic reaction and then the chemotherapy and then really the side effects, I think, kind of hit that next day, um, the nausea and all of that stuff. She was on five anti-medic um, medications. It was just a tremendous amount of medication for her to be on. So I really feel like she powered through as best as she could, um, kept as positive of an attitude as she could. Um, and we allowed her, of course, to just have those moments of um, anger, uh, impatience, rage. There was a time in her second stay where she screamed at me for about five hours. Um, it was 10 p.m. at night. I thought, oh my gosh, we're going to get kicked out of the hospital. <laughs> the nurses kept coming in like, is everything okay in here? Um, but she was she was just mad. And I feel like we just allowed her to feel, feel those things. Uh, PCH had a psychologist who came in and checked on her frequently, which was amazing super helpful she had a social worker that was assigned to her um just having the support of people who have been through all of this before um, really allowed us i think to focus on her care and her needs um as best we could while you know obviously needing support ourselves mm-hmm. um she was she was just a trooper through it all um that being said we kind of figured out by the third round <laughs> some of the medications that did not work for her. And one of that was the steroid that they gave her as an anti-medic. Um, they gave her pretty big doses of, um, I think it's dexamethasone. Yeah. Is that right? Yep. So who the roid rage was real with that. And we were like, can we try something else this time? <laughs> so for round three, we um, axed that, added in a different medication and it worked a lot better. I, I don't know there we never quite found a really good combination of drugs um to help her with the nausea and everything she was just it was a struggle while she was impatient um it was not anything that i would wish on anyone to have to watch their child go through it was it was brutal was she taking a break from school or still trying to do school during this time yeah so at first we were hopeful she would be able to go back to school um we kind of were under the impression she'd be able to do her chemotherapy a little bit quicker than she actually did go through it um she ended up taking um like a a leave from school um, which in hindsight was the best thing we could have done um and her school was amazing the teachers um zoomed her for four hours a week just one-on-one which was unbelievable and so they she had like visual contact with them um you know one hour a day for four days a week which was just so great we were so grateful for that um so she tried to keep up on as much as she could obviously while not having that in-person time made a huge difference so we spent a good chunk of time this summer going into the school and then working at home on things that she missed to catch up Um, she she is not our kid whoever um was at the top of the curve academically (laughs) anyway. And it really impacted, I think her learning. And then obviously, um, you know, her kindergarten year was COVID, the start of COVID. So she missed that last quarter of her kindergarten year. She missed the first quarter of her first grade year. She did online Zoom for that and then went back in person the rest of first grade and then ended up missing about four months of second grade. So. Here we are now. I've got a third grader who's never had a full year of in-person learning, and it's it's tough. Um, she she's she's behind, um, and um, I, I think for the next year to two, it'll be a little bit of catch up for her. But she again is just impressive in her resilience and her wanting to try and wanting to 
participate and she's home today, but she's real mad about it. She, <laughs> I was chatting with another cancer mom on Instagram and her daughter is home as well. Um, her daughter is 11 and has cancer as well. And she's super upset. She's home. It's like these kids who have had school taken from them, I think just realize what a privilege it is to actually be in the classroom. So, yeah. Um, and, and what about, you know, your, yourself and your husband and your other kids, how did you take care of yourself so that you could show up for Carson and your other daughters and for your family, you know, the rest of your family? I won't lie. That was a a definite struggle to try to uh, focus on any type of self-care during, during the time that Carson was really undergoing the tough chemotherapy and the surgeries and stuff like that. Um, My husband and I really tried to switch off every other night in the hospital just because I'm sure you hear this. It's like (laughs) as a caregiver staying on those little tiny beds, couches, whatever they are, it's, it's brutal. Um, My husband and I both have bad backs. And so we try to rotate out, always wanting to make sure that someone was home with our our two older daughters um, in the evenings when they were home from school um, and then through the night. And luckily, my parents were great about picking the big girls up from school, bringing them home, getting them through like homework, dinner and any of their activities. They actually kept up, kept up with volleyball and um, dance and piano lessons while we were dealing with all of this with Carson. And it was just because we had so much support. Um, so the self-care was not great <laughs> during all of that time. I felt like it was just a scramble every second to get, you know, food ready, meals ready for lunches, for dinners, for the big girls, to make sure I had transportation for them to and from school um to get carson packed up for the inpatient stays to deal with her actual medical needs at home when she was home um and she was bored i mean she was just she was sick she was bored she was lonely it was really a difficult time uh, to focus on really anything other than our girls and their immediate needs um so it was it was survival mode um i would like to say i did a much better job at taking care of myself and my husband and our marriage but It was tough. Um, Things that I did do for myself were things like 10 to 15 minute walks at night when he would come home and if Carson was stable, I would go out and go for a quick walk um, or a quick bike ride. I try to get both Carson and I outside every day. I thought that that was really important for us. Um, It was hard because her skin was obviously so sensitive to the sun. And then especially um, having when she lost her hair that was tough too. She didn't love wearing a beanie or a hat all the time in the sun, but um, just trying to get some sunshine, trying to get a little bit of movement every day. I tried to drink a lot of water um, alongside of my lots of caffeine. <laughs> and then I just tried to really force myself to eat. It wasn't um, healthy choices by any means, but I tried to just, okay, you got to eat, you got to drink, you got to move your body, <laughs> kind of those things. And then sleep, obviously we would have loved a lot more of during that really difficult um, inpatient time. Are you still in that survival mode or is it getting a little bit better? So it is better um, by a lot. I feel like once she, for me, the biggest relief of all, I feel like came after she got her port removed. I was holding my breath until then, even though she had been 
or declared um, NED, no evidence of disease before that, I did not like let out my biggest sigh of relief until she got that poured out. For some reason, I was hanging on to that as kind of like the last step. Once that happened, I felt a lot better. Um, it still was almost, a, well, it was probably about three weeks. No, that's not true. That is not true. It was a week and a half later that she went back um, to school. So once she went back to school and she had been in school for that first week and had done really well, um, that kind of also lessened the load for me. And um, I feel like that was, you know, that was helpful as well. I feel like the summer allowed us to also come up for air a little bit. Um, she was back to kind of her normal routines. She did an art camp, um, a theater camp. She participated in volleyball all summer, and that was really great to see. So I think with everything that comes that's more quote unquote normal, we get a little bit further out from that survival mode and more into a mode where it seems stable. Um, obviously, the moments leading up and the, the week leading up for me to scans is I feel like I'm right back into that survival mode. I'm sure it's just trauma and my mind um, playing lots of fun tricks on me, but um, that week leading up to scans is really hard emotionally for, for Carson and for me. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. No, Sorry. It, it I got one off on no, a tangent. No, it's, it's okay. a great explanation. How, how often does she have scans now and how often will she continue to follow that? So she just switched on August 1st um, to every three months. Um, August 1st was her last monthly scan. So from February to August, she had monthly scans and labs. And then um, now she's at every three months. So that in itself is a huge relief. A um, little bit worrisome to me just because I'm a worrier and I'm like, oh, okay, we're going three months. <laughs> without checking her levels. The key thing that they check for with Carson is the alpha theta protein. So I'm like, if it were my way, I'd still would want her checked every month. <laughs> but we're following the standard uh, protocol of care with childhood ovarian cancer, solid tumor. And and yeah, so she's every three months. And for her, that's a huge relief um, as well. Just not having to go to PCH. Every time we've gone, she's done better with it as far as emotionally and physically. The first few months was very tough. She would um, at, you know, on the drive down there, she would just be shaking like leaf, poor kid. And she hated getting the blood drawn. She hated the contrast with the IV. She hated it all. She would just scream. Um, we would have to ask for child life every time to help with that IV um, and to explain what was going to happen with, you know, uh, the CT and all of that. But every time she's gone, she's done better and better. So again, getting out of that survival mode and a little bit into just leaning on this, this is our new reality. This is what it is. And um, it's what we need to do for her, what she needs to do. And um, just kind of trying to embrace that as much as we can. Do you talk about it a lot, you know, outside of those scan weeks or is it more, okay, we're kind of trying to get back to normal? Um, I don't think there's ever going to be that back to normal for Carson and for us to be totally honest. Uh, we talk about it all the time because it's, it's in our life. Um, we've connected with several childhood cancer families. One of our dear friend's daughters was diagnosed with cancer at seven and 
Um, it's something that she'll be dealing with the rest of her life. Um, and it's just all around us. It's, it's shaped the things we do. Um, I, you know, we did that walk this weekend to try to raise money for childhood cancer research and to support other childhood cancer families is what she wanted to do on her birthday, um, <laughs> it, which is just really incredible for a seven-year-old to want to do things like that. Um, when we thought about our yearly theme for the school year, um, you know, it was all about trying to do the things that we can. And um, she wanted to incorporate a childhood cancer ribbon with it. And my daughters, my other daughters were on board with that as well. So as much as um, Carson is stable, I feel like she's happy and I feel like she's thriving. This new normal of always having this diagnosis with us, is it's, it's just part of us now. It's part of our everyday language. It's part of um, like the decorations in our home and the clothes that we wear and the things that we're interested in. Um, so it's it's changed a lot. Um, and to be honest, I think it's it's changed things for the better for us. In terms of, you know, your other daughters and how was it for them? You know, in the sense that it, it's such a life changing event, not just for Carson and you and your husband, but for your other daughters as well. And how did they handle this? Um, so I think it was I think it was more difficult for them than than I'll ever actually realize. Um, we've talked a lot about it. We would come home from the hospital every night. And of course, the girls were just floored when we told them what was happening that first day. Um, they, you know, they could not believe it. It was it was shocking. Um, we were up until 10 p.m. I was home with them. Clayton was at the hospital with Carson. We were up until 10 p.m. just kind of walking through everything and they were terrified. They were really sad. Um, they were, they had my middle one, especially <laughs> had a million questions that I tried to answer. And at that time, I think the scariest thing for all of us was we didn't have a lot of answers. Mm -hmm. We didn't know what type of uh, cancer this was going to be. If at all, it was cancers, which they were basically telling us it would be, um, at that point, uh, we didn't know how she would recover from surgery. So the unknowns, were, I, I can only imagine how terrifying it was to them at the time. So at that moment, it was our 10 year old and our 12 year old, um, you know, and this is their little sister. This is something that they, you know, felt like just came out of the blue as the rest of us felt like as well. And it was hard to answer the questions without just uh, sobbing, to be honest. I relied a lot on my mom for advice with how to talk to them appropriately with, you know, language appropriate for their age. Um, you know, their, um, their cognitive abilities to understand what was happening. And um, I think it was more difficult for them than I'll ever realize. We had them see the, the same psychologist at PCH that Carson was seeing. We were able to get some appointments scheduled for them. And I think that helped a lot just to be able for them to actually physically walk into PCH and see where Carson was getting some of her care. Um, they wouldn't let us onto the oncology floor, but they were able to go into the oncology clinic um, and actually see, okay, this is where Carson comes for just like routine labs and routine appointments. And I think that helped clear their mind a lot as well. Um, and I just wanted to make sure we were doing a good job and not, um, you know, just brushing things under the rug with how they were processing things. 
and what support they needed themselves because it was it was a lot to handle for a you know 10 and 12 year old girl at that point um and since then i think that they've done remarkably well at dealing with the emotional impact that this has had um you know it was really difficult for them not to have mom or dad with them um, for a lot of hours of the day um, weekends often we would be gone um, caring for her at the hospital there was a lot of back and forth shuttling with transportation sending him to my mom's you know for a night or two here and there and i am sure that that took a toll um, on them tremendously they were troopers though i mean we would come home from the hospital they will they would have the laundry done the dishes all done <laughs> trash was taken out they had done their homework everything like the house was shut down for the day they are incredibly responsible kids and so it definitely made them grow up i think um i wish that they didn't have to experience it but they stepped up in a way that was just um i don't know so admirable yeah it sounds like you have some very very special girls you really are yeah <laughs> so now looking back looking back at this year and obviously you could have never imagined what was to come but having gone through this and as a caregiver and as a mom what advice do you have for people that are newly entering this reality my advice would be a little bit of a twofold one would be some type of self-care we talked about that a little bit before and whatever that looks like for you maybe that is um getting out in the sunshine maybe that's calling a friend that you feel you can kind of unload on um, for me, honestly, in the car driving home from PCH at nights when I just didn't understand and I was angry and frustrated, I just would let out these crazy screams and <laughs> I felt way better after I let myself cry in the car. I didn't want to cry and break down in front of Carson. And so allowing myself those moments on the 40 minute drive home from PCH at night just to scream and cry and then settle down and I would call my mom or my sister um, because they really understood kind of what was happening and just allowing myself to unload on them um, was, was the best thing I could have done. Um, just trying to do any form of self-care, movement, sunshine, eating, drinking water, um, you know, reaching out to someone who, who can understand was a huge thing for me. Um, and then my next piece of advice would be to ask a lot of questions. Um, and there's so many unknowns. And I feel like, <laughs> I feel like we've met quite a few uh, parents who are caregivers, you know, of kids who have had cancer. And I haven't met a single parent whose child um, has had the same diagnosis as the next one. It really is amazing how many different types of cancer there are. And, um, just all of the different things. So I think asking questions and being unafraid to advocate for your child um, is hugely important. Um, and those are my biggest pieces of advice to so just ask all the questions. Um, when you think you know enough, you probably don't. And so just keep pressing and keep asking. And even if you think you've asked the exact same question, but you're still confused about it, ask again. There were lots of times where I felt like, I know I'm repeating myself, I know Clayton just asked this in one way, but I need to hear it in a different way or I need it repeated. Um, for me, that was really good. And also make sure you're recording <laughs> when you're asking the questions. 
of the oncologist. There were so many times where I would go back and listen to the questions we asked of the surgery team, of the anesthesia team, of the oncology team, uh, you know, of the clinic team. It was like we had so many doctors along the way. It was real difficult to keep track of what was what. And um, just asking questions and having another, you know, another way to record it and look back on it was really helpful. Yeah, that's really wonderful advice. And I like that your self-care isn't this grandiose Mm-mm. big thing, you know, take a weekend. Like those, no. are, they're not possible <laughs> in that moment. So I like that it's get outside for 10 minutes, you know, scream in the car, but it's things that are very manageable mm-hmm. in that time. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, I wanted to say something like take a bath or, but no, like that stuff just does not happen when you're in the real thick of being a caregiver like that, those things are not going to happen. So having just some realistic expectations, even if it's just feeling comfortable enough to leave your child in their room while they're inpatient and take 10 minutes to go downstairs, grab a bite to eat, um, walk around, you know, the halls for a second in a different floor than the one that your kid is staying on, whatever it might be, um, grab a coffee, do something quick for yourself, um, just to mentally give yourself a, a moment to decompress. What did Carson do during those days and weeks that she was impatient? I mean, that's, that's a lot of time to pass. Yeah, it was a tremendous amount of time. Um, the first day, you know, with her surgery, I think was about Let's see. We checked in on a Wednesday. She didn't get out till Sunday. Um, and then with her regular inpatient stays, it was about four to five days at a time. So I packed a suitcase <laughs> full. It was our biggest suitcase we owned. I packed a suitcase full of activities and things for her to do and books to read and coloring books and Play-Doh, slime, bead kits. I mean, you name it, we packed it. And Fortunately for us, we um, had been so generously gifted, like, I am not kidding, probably 100 activity type things like that. When people found out Carson had cancer, they just dropped things off by the basketful. It was amazing. So I just, um, I knew and I was hoping she would basically have three rounds of treatment. So three inpatient stays. I divided all the stuff (laughs) into thirds and we would take a suitcase full of stuff for her to do. Um, She had a little bit of schoolwork to try to, you know, keep up with. There were lots of times she didn't feel good enough to even attempt the schoolwork. And um, even with those activities and all the things that we packed for her to do, she would do something for five to 10 minutes get frustrated, bored, angry, and then move on. So we would just fly through things. Mm -hmm. Um, But Phoenix Children's has an incredible um, one child life team um, who puts on these amazing um, activities and programs through the child life zone. And at the time, everything was shut down because, you know, it was again in the thick Mm -hmm. of a really bad COVID time um, this winter. And so she wasn't allowed to go down there to the child life zone, but they would do programs on the TV, um, animal therapy, bingo, medical term, bingo. They even had, um, their animal assisted therapy would do paintings and then come deliver the paintings to the kids. It was the cutest thing ever. Um, so passing the time with those programs that Phoenix children's provided was the, the things she looked forward to the most, the animal assisted therapy, and then, um, child life. Those people were, oh my gosh, uh, they were our saviors during that time. It was, it was what saved Carson truly. 
And and so if someone's kind of listening to this and, you know, were those gifts of the activity things like, was that, that's a good gift or were there other, if someone wants to help someone kind of, you know, with a child with cancer, what are some of the best ways that would be helpful? Because I think we often, for an adult, I think we kind of have, okay, we can bring food or give a gift card, but with mm-hmm. kids that might look a little different. Right. And um, the food thing, so I had, we were lucky right off the bat, my boss, the gal that I work for is just incredible. And she said, what do you guys need? Meal train? What, what can I do? How can we help? And I said, I can't even deal with a meal train. Like it just was not helpful to me. My mom was able to bring some food in. I was able to like, you know, do grocery orders and that type of stuff. So the food thing, I was like, I can't, I just can't handle people bringing food. And we had to be really careful with what Carson was exposed to um, as far as, you know, germs. And then also the food that she ate was able to eat changed drastically. She had a lot of limitations on what food she could eat. So I just didn't want to deal with that necessarily um, and having to ask for ingredients and stuff like that. Um, So for us, it was really helpful to have people bring in age appropriate things and just, they literally would just drop it at the house, which was great. And, um, you know, there was always a super nice card or, um, you know, I don't know, she's just a loved little girl. (laughs) And so it was just amazing to see all of these kind gifts. People brought blankets that she could use at the hospital, stuffed animals, activities, um, books, things like that, that just kept her kept her at least um, occupied for a little bit of time. We were so grateful for that. So for us and at Carson's age, that was a great way to um, support. You know, if you're if you're talking about a child who is obviously an infant, um, I think some of those activity things would be helpful as well, maybe a little bit less so. Um, and then again, for a child who's an older, you know, maybe preteen or teen, I think that would look a little bit different as well. Um, so, but I, I don't know, for Carson's age, I thought that that was a really great way to just be supportive was to to do and to bring things that she, you know, people thought she would be interested in. It was really, really wonderful. Yeah. Um, just, just one last question before we wrap up. I'm sure everyone wanted to know what was happening and updates, whether with friends and family. How did you kind of keep, did you have like a website or is there, you know, how did you kind of spread the news without having to have the same conversation over and over and over again? Um, Right. So I was updating here and there just via my own personal Instagram account. Um, And then I posted a few things on Facebook as well. I'm not great at Facebook, um, but I, I can handle Instagram. And then Finally, it just got to the point where there were so many people that I wasn't immediate friends with on Instagram, but still, you know, they were in Carson's school community or her dance community, um, all of these places where we've just had a lot of, um, you know, connections over the years. And I thought, I'm just going to do a public Instagram account for her um, because I really relied heavily on the Instagram accounts of other moms whose kids had cancer. I was getting information and research and support um, in a way I didn't know was even possible or even out there at the time. And I thought if my story of taking care of Carson, if Carson's story of going through this at age seven could ever help someone, um, maybe this is worth doing. So we don't have a lot of followers on um, Instagram, but it started as just a way of being able to let people know how she was doing 
um, who we didn't necessarily have, you know, a direct phone number or email mm -hmm. address for. Um, and it was quick for me to be able to do. I could do it from my phone in a 10 minute time period while we were at the hospital and boom, it was done. Um, and so that was that worked well for us to be able to do that. I don't know if I'll keep it up. Um, and I don't know. And I, I ask Carson's permission before I post anything. I always get her permission. That's really important to me. I know at age seven, she may not fully grasp that or age eight now, but uh, part of my job is social media. So she's seen me kind of grow um, like social media for, for the business that I work for. So I feel like she has a little bit of a handle on it, but um, that for us was the best way to do it. I know a lot of folks um, use websites. Um, they kind of can create Facebook groups, which is I think a really good way to do that as well. Um, yeah, there's lots of different avenues, but for me, I was exhausted at trying to retell things over and over um and then for our immediate family that would just be a direct text daily they wanted you know obviously updates daily on how carson was doing so that was easy to send at the end of the day as well just the direct text to them yeah i mean it's it's so much right that goes beyond just caring that immediate caring it's all this other stuff that is also very important and just as consuming yeah, it is um, the emotional toll and, that it all took was um, was shocking, I think. I think we were in shock for a really long time at just how drained we were emotionally, which then obviously affects you physically, mentally, your ability to process and handle things. I mean, it just really impacted a lot of stuff. Um, but having to tell the story over and over again was, you know, people are... and and. And I think especially with a childhood cancer diagnosis when they're so young and it's something as rare as ovarian cancer in a child. I mean, I could probably be a very rich person <laughs> for the amount of times I heard, oh my gosh, ovarian cancer. Like <laughs> people are just floored by it. It's really an interesting thing. So, um, well, thank you so much for sharing. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to touch on? Um, no, I just wanted to say thank you on a personal level. It's been really great again like to make these connections via social media um just the ability to have information to learn um and again i'm sure i've asked questions of you that have been <laughs> you're probably like oh goodness gracious this is silly oh, seems silly not, to you not at all i mean there's no such thing right as silly and i think for me i kind of really i think it makes me a better doctor because you realize what people are asking about and what what is sticking and what's not sticking in terms of the education piece for sure. And I think um, just having the format of a podcast to go back and listen to, I actually emailed myself one of your podcasts <laughs> just last night because I was like, oh, I need to go listen to that one. But having it in a podcast form is really great um, as a caregiver because you can listen for the snippets of time that you have. Exactly. Um, and I, I started it as a way really because a lot of people are uncomfortable in a bigger support group setting. And so yes. this kind of allows you again, like you said, in bits and pieces of time. But, you know, one of the things is, you know, I'm trying to get more stuff off Instagram because that's a like the pod, the, the podcast, it's stored, it's accessible. And, you know, you never know. Social media is just so finicky that uh, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, I agree. And that's, you know, one of the things I first learned, um, like with my job is, it, you know, social media is just not yours. You don't own it. You don't own that account. Really. It's not yours. It'll it's, you know, no guarantee that it'll be there forever. So yeah, having a way to do that. Um, so I started actually recording all of my posts because 
just screen recording it on my phone because I'm like someday maybe Carson will want to see this and yeah. have it and um yeah so anyway I think it'll be it'll probably be so interesting or helpful for her later right to yeah to back. process everything yeah we've met several families again whose kiddos are you know preteen and then you know maybe have finished treatment and now they're getting into those teen years and there's a lot of new issues and things that come up emotionally um, and it's going to be, it'll be difficult for her. Um, and then of course, obviously as she heads into maybe wanting her own family and things like that, just um, dealing with fertility and the, and the things that have been impacted by this as well will be, will be tough for her. Yeah, so. I mean, there's, there's so much more down the road. For sure. Lots more to come for her. Yep. Um, where can listeners find you if they want to so, connect with you? Sure. They can find us on Instagram and Carson's handle is um, at Carson Conquers Cancer, all one word. And we'd love to connect. We, again, have just found it super supportive and helpful to connect with other families who have gone through similar um, diagnoses and then also to just have the support. It really um, did wonders for me personally as the caregiver when someone would comment on Instagram, just cheering her on. It was, it felt like an incredibly supportive way to um, have access to folks and just to know that we had a community out there cheering for her made a world of difference for us. That's wonderful. Thank you again, Christy. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Christy as she shares about Carson's experiences and how her ovarian cancer journey has impacted her and, and, and those around her. We talk a lot about adult cancer, obviously, but I think this was an important story to highlight. And I am, I'm so grateful that Christy took the time and was and shared it with me in such an honest and vulnerable way. I urge you to follow more of Carson's journey at Carson Conquers Cancer. It is a beautiful, beautiful page. If you liked this episode or any others of the Interlude podcast, I would be so grateful if you can take a moment to leave a rating and review over an Apple podcast as that is the best way to help me grow the show and bring it to new listeners. I am also starting or have started rather a Patreon community, patreon.com slash Dr. Duklinski, where I am bringing some additional bonus podcast episodes there, um, some more teaching episodes. So I hope you will check that out. You can always find me at Dr. Duplinski on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. I love hearing from you. So please reach out. Let me know what you thought about this episode or others. And I will talk to all of you soon. 